Normal broadcasting has been discontinued. Coming to you from Portland, Oregon. The sports business capital of North America. Keep your radio tuned to this frequency. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Now, your host. I tell you, I've never seen anything like that guy. Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us this week. In segment three, we're going to discuss the possible deal that would see 80% of the New Jersey Nets sold to Russian billionaire Mikhail Prokhorov. Lots of angles to cover with this story. The richest person in Russia could become an NBA owner. We'll discuss this in segment three. In segment four, SportsSense, another big name from the sports world, Steve Sarkeesian, the head football coach at the University of Washington. At 35, Sarkeesian is the third youngest head coach in college football. He's coming off a huge win last weekend against his former employer, USC. I caught up with Coach Sark earlier this week. I think you'll enjoy getting to know one of the brightest young head coaches in college football. Stick around for that in segment four. A couple of other notes. Visit my Sports Business blog or download the SBR podcast on demand. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. Become our Facebook friend. Follow me via Twitter. Just visit my blog at sportsbusinessradio.com. Link to the Sports Business Radio Facebook and Twitter pages. You can follow me on Twitter at SB Radio. We just passed 1,000 followers. Thank you. At Zanger was our 1,000th follower. So thank you to him. Uh Lots of stuff going on in the world of sports this week. Nathan Roach and Bobby Corser in studio with me. Nathan, uh, interesting, this Friday, the selections will be made in Copenhagen for the 2016 Summer Olympics. Chicago has spent $48 million on their bid. There's rumors that President Obama may be in Copenhagen to try and get this done for the United States. Well, yeah, they've invested a lot of money. I know we'll break it down in the headlines, but... uh... For me, I hope that Chicago gets it. Chicago is a great city. It's a great sports city. The Cubs, the Bears, the Bulls, people love their sports there. They got some big names coming out to uh, to represent. Oprah Oprah Winfrey. Oprah is getting on the plane. Uh, Contingent of 26 former U.S. athletes will also be making the trip to Copenhagen in an effort to try and get that sealed up. Well, we told you last week Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA, passed away pancreatic cancer. A replacement in the interim has been named. We'll tell you about how that process is going to work. That's coming up next in Headlines. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This is Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. I know many of our listeners dream of a job in the sports industry but don't know where to begin. To me, it's an easy call. Go where sports business education got its start, at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. As the first business school in the country to offer undergraduate and graduate programs themed around this multi-billion dollar industry, the Warsaw Center offers a unique blend and strong general business training, sports business curriculum taught by industry experts, and rich out-of-classroom experiences including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships. With a strong industry and alumni network and a staff dedicated to accelerating your career, the Warsaw Center has a proven track record of placing students in teams, league offices, corporate sponsors, marketing agencies, sports media, and sports shoe and apparel firms. But like any elite team, there's only a few spots on the roster. To learn more, visit sportsbusinessradio.com for a link to the center's website. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center. Passion, integrity, and leadership in sports business education. 
Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. It's time for this week's Sports Business Radio headline, sponsored by the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. Visit warsawcenter.com for more information. Headline number one, Jim Ish has been named as the interim president of the NCAA. He's going to fill that position until the successor for Dr. Miles Brand is selected. Ish is an NCAA veteran of 11 years, Nathan. And, you know, a lot of people picking up the slack while the search is going on. But Jim Ish gives a little stability to the NCAA after the untimely death of Dr. Miles Brand. Well, I know these are always difficult times, and I always wonder about the interim people when people pass away, why they don't just elect someone like Ish, who has the experience, who's been around for a number of years. I don't know if he's in the running or not, but it just seems like a natural transition. And, you know, we're right amidst the college, you know, athletics is going on right now with football, basketball right around the corner. You want to get someone in there quick. Well, like I said, the good news is they have a lot of senior people in the NCAA who I think are capable of making big decisions. Uh, It's going to be interesting to see where the search committee goes with this. In the past, they had gone with athletic directors. Then with Dr. Miles Brand, he was a university president. Are they going to choose an athletic director? Are they going to choose a university president? Might we see someone like Jim Ish promoted to president and just taking the interim tag away from the presidency? I think I'm going to throw in my own vote right now. Greg Shaheen, who has done such an amazing job running the NCAA tournament, really making it the mega event that it is, March Madness as it's become known, I think he's brilliant. He's a young guy. He has great ideas. He has a lot of energy. He has a ton of connections. He's well-respected. I think Greg Shaheen, who has been inside the NCAA offices in Indianapolis for a long time, knows how it all works. I think he would be a great choice as president of the NCAA. So if if you're part of the selection committee, would you personally rather go with an athletic director or would you rather go with a president? Who is more qualified in your mind? Naturally, I lean towards the athletic director, but presidents have a little bit more of a broad spectrum. You know, it's interesting because I think what Dr. Brand brought to the table was the fact that as a university president, he's really interested in putting the student and student-athlete. Athletic directors, I'm not saying that they're not interested in academics, but I think their jobs depend on the success of the athletic department. The university president, he's running the whole thing or she's running the whole thing. So I just think that academic reform is a big hot-button issue for the NCAA right now. I tend to think if they don't go in-house with someone like Greg Shaheen or sticking with Jim Ish, I think they're going to go university president again. Well, I wonder if it wouldn't be an outside-the-box idea to bring someone in who's not a university president or who's not an athletic director, someone from outside the NCAA, maybe, altogether. So, Nathan, we'll keep our eye on this story, and we'll see uh, where this search goes. But in the meantime, Jim Ish will be the interim NCAA president. Our next headline, after two weeks, the NFL continues to turn in record numbers. The New York Giants' 33-31 win over the Cowboys last Sunday, the new Cowboys stadium, was a double record setter. In addition to the game drawing the largest regular season crowd in NFL history, over 105,000 fans, it also marks the highest rated telecast in NBC's four years of Sunday night football. The 16.527 overnight rating is the highest figure for any regular season game in primetime since 1998. 
continuing this trend, ESPN earns an 11.0 cable rating, 14.7 million viewers for Colts Dolphins on Monday night football, delivering the largest cable audience of 2009 for the second consecutive week. Nathan, again, we've talked about this in past weeks, whether it's attendance, whether it's TV numbers, people's appetites for the NFL, they can't eat enough of this league right now. Well, and not only that, if you've been watching, the games have been phenomenal. You mentioned those two games. Those were great games, and it seems to be the trend, both in college football as well as the NFL. I mean, every game seems to be a nail-biter, which is the storyline that everybody's hoping for. Well, there were three Monday night games so far, two on opening weekend and then Colts-Dolphins. Combined, the games have been decided by nine points total. When you have those kinds of finishes and you have marquee names playing in those games and you have people who are starving for NFL football to start again— and I think fantasy leagues lead to this, too. i got to tell you, I was at a buddy's house this past week, and everyone in the room had a fantasy football team. And they are glued to the TV, rooting for their players. And I think that element, there are so many people that are playing fantasy football, that element has glued people to the sets as well. Absolutely. I, I know I'm a fantasy football player, and certainly that's glued me to the set. This I is my know. first year doing it. Who's your star on your team? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, Plaxico Burris, I think. <laughs> <laughs> You're in big trouble. Yeah, exactly. No, I actually have Brett Favre, and, uh, you know, I got Larry Fitzgerald. I've got... Uh, you know Matt Castle, so I've got a I, you know I got a mix. I'm in second to last, so I don't have the star power that some other guys. Yeah, have. besides Fitzgerald, uh, the guys you just mentioned, I don't think are going to score you a lot of points. You might need to go back to the uh, supplemental draft. Cutler, I got Cutler because I'm a Bears guy. All right, well we'll see what he does for you. Good luck with that, and congratulations on being a fantasy football player for the first time. Thank you. All right, let's talk boxing and let's talk MMA with our next headline: Floyd Mayweather. And Juan Manuel Marquez, they fought at the MGM Grand Garden Arena in Las Vegas last Saturday. 13,116 people attended it. We don't have the pay-per-view numbers yet, but they were pretty stellar. Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao, the two biggest draws in boxing right now, may be in line for a fight. I think that would be one of the highest pay-per-views of all time, and we'll keep our eye on that. But the thing that was really interesting, Nathan is a sellout crowd on the same night came to watch UFC 103. 17,428 people came to American Airlines Center in Dallas, and they set all kinds of records with food and drink, and uh, they grossed $2.4 million for the evening. So, you know, we talk a lot about boxing versus UFC and MMA, and... Boxing had one of their shining stars fight Floyd Mayweather, and he still wasn't bigger than what MMA and UFC did in Dallas. That's interesting. You know, and I'm still shocked that the MMA is now bigger than boxing. I mean, boxing, it just seems like it's kind of an American pastime, if you will, and MMA is still young, it's still fresh. I mean, that's some of the biggest names in boxing right there, and the MMA is just beating the pants off them. Personally, I'm still a boxing fan, but I, I guess I'm trying to figure out where this appeal of the MMA is coming from. Well, it had appeal in Dallas because in the facility's eight-year history, the event ranked only behind the Rolling Stones in 2005 and the Eagles. So we're talking about all events. They did bigger numbers than the Dallas Mavericks did during the finals of 2006. So, you know, huge numbers. And tickets were $50 
to $450, and they still pulled in over 17,000 people. So this isn't like you're, you know, you're – uh, beer drinking, big gut person. That's good. This, these are expensive tickets. Oh yeah, I'd love to know what the uh, ringside seats go for. It's something like that. Uh, yeah, probably pretty expensive. All right, our last headline of the week: President Obama is going to travel to Copenhagen this upcoming week to support the Chicago bid for the 2016 Olympics. This, according to sources that tell around the rings, that the president, who has ties to Chicago, is going to try and go to Copenhagen and seal the deal for Chicago. Now, the White House is denying this. They're saying that he's got other things on his agenda. But regardless, on Friday, keep your eyes open because Chicago is competing against Tokyo, Madrid, and Rio for the host slot for the 2016 Summer Olympics. Oprah is going. Chicago has spent $48 million on this bid, Nathan. So a lot at stake here for not only Chicago, but the whole United States. And where's Michael Jordan? Why isn't Michael Jordan? I mean, he's one of the most recognizable, biggest faces in sports in the world from Chicago is not going to be in attendance. All right. So, again, keep your eyes open for that. One of our other headlines of the week, we're going to discuss it in our next segment. The richest man in Russia, $9.5 billion is going to buy 80% of the New Jersey Nets. What does this mean for the NBA, for the Brooklyn Arena deal, for the mafia? What does it mean? (laughs) We're going to tell you coming up next. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. My guest is Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Let's go back to the year 2000, the year before you bought the Mavericks. They were 40 and 42. Fan interest was pretty lukewarm. When you bought this team, what did you see in this team? What was the potential that you saw to get them to where they are today? Probably none. Ryan Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. I think the reason why we have a BCS-type system in Division 1A and elsewhere we have playoffs is that the schools in Division 1A feel that the regular season is the most important aspect of football. Read the Sports Business blog and listen to SBR On Demand at SportsBusinessRadio.com. See, I think that's the big thing. Sports Business Radio, Saturday. <laughs> Or online at sportsbusinessradio.com. This is Sports Business Radio. Well, the richest man in Russia, worth $9.5 billion, Mikhail Prokhorov, has a deal pending to purchase 80% of the New Jersey Nets. And this is going to be interesting Bobby and Nathan, because this story has so many layers to it. Let's just start off with some of the economics behind this deal. Bruce Ratner is the current owner of the New Jersey Nets, and he's been trying to move the team to Brooklyn for a number of years. He thinks it's part real estate. Uh, It's obviously New York instead of New Jersey. The Izide Center is one of the oldest facilities in the NBA. It's really not up to NBA standards anymore, so they want to get out of there and into a new state-of-the-art arena. But this Brooklyn project in the Atlantic Yards development has had all kinds of 
problems attached to it, all kinds of hurdles attached to it. So this deal is contingent on a few things. Number one is the NBA's Board of Governors, which is the other owners, approving this gentleman taking 80% control of the New Jersey Nets. And then the other is Bruce Ratner still has to obtain financing for the arena project and control of all the land required by the end of this year. So if that doesn't happen, then I don't think Mikhail Prokhorov is going to want to own the New Jersey Nets in their current home. Now, he's paying about $200 million for the Nets and the 80%. That's chump change to this guy. I mean, this guy blows his nose with $200 million when he's got $9.5 billion. Here's something that I researched this week that I think is fascinating. This gentleman is from Russia. Did you know that Brooklyn, New York, has more Russians living in the city than any other city in the United States? So think of the dream combination of a Russian owner and all the publicity that he's getting already, and he hasn't even bought the team officially, and all the Russians living in Brooklyn. Plus, if you're NBA Commissioner David Stern, you like a few things about this deal. Number one is... You want the team in Brooklyn instead of in the dump they're in in New Jersey right now. And all this development. This is great for the franchise value. And uh, I think out of all the teams, the Nets are valued at second to last of all the NBA teams right now. So this increases their value a lot. And all the real estate around there, lots of possibilities for uh, making money on this deal. The other thing is David Stern always talks about the globalization of basketball. And he and others have predicted a day when either a Chinese investor, a European investor, someone would be a majority owner of an NBA team. Well, if this happens, that day has come. So that's exciting for your league. Now, there are some drawbacks to this deal. I've read a lot of stories about how Russian basketball takes place and the underground mafia and all this other stuff. And I'm not saying, you know... I'm not talking Sopranos here, but I'm talking about uh, just doing things a little differently than the way they're done in the NBA and the way they're done in the United States. And I would say David Stern, very conservative, very buttoned up, likes things done a certain way. If they're not done that way, not real happy about it. So you could have this clash of cultures, this Russian owner who wants to continue to do things his way. And if David Stern thinks Mark Cuban's been hard to deal with, this guy could be lights out for him in a much bigger market. Well, here's the I think it's great personally from a fan's perspective. We've watched Mark Cuban shake it up a little bit. I think it'd be great to see him shake it up a little bit too, because that's what, as a fan, I want to see, I want to read about. I love all the stories about Cuban. I mean, you and I were talking off air about, you know, in Russia, the player of the game gets $5,000 cash under the table. I mean, that, that to me is fun from a fan's perspective. It's not probably in line with what David Stern would like to see happen, but I like hearing those stories. I like reading about them, and I think overall, I think it's great for the NBA as long as David Stern can try and keep him in check. Well, and that's going to be the challenge. Uh, I would imagine that this gentleman's going to want to bring in some of his own people. Boy, as a side note here, this just popped into my head. Imagine if you're in the sports world. I know we have a lot of students listening to this show. Brush up on your Russian. If you want a job with the Nets and you speak Russian, you're golden. 
I mean, seriously, I would think that that would be you'd be a real prime candidate for a job with this new owner and the Nets if you can speak some Russian. And there can't be a lot of students out there that are studying Russian, are well, there? If there aren't, they should, and and they should try and get a job with this gentleman. And you know, again, Brooklyn, the highest population of Russians of any city in the United States. Imagine the marketing that could be done from this Russian owner to the Russian fan base there in Brooklyn. Well, and he's got a huge bankroll. He's got deep pockets. What can this mean for possibly the Nets as an organization, as a team? Could they put together now a championship team with those kind of pockets? We've seen other NBA owners, Paul Allen, who can dig down deep in their pockets and pay up. Well, and this is like Christmas for Bruce Ratner, the owner of the Nets, because this guy's a pauper compared to uh, Mr. Prokhorov at $9.5 billion. Bruce Ratner has been losing a lot of money. Supposedly, he's lost about $380 million pre-tax over the last five years. That's more than his franchise is worth. His franchise is valued at about $295 million. This guy's lost $380 million. He's struggling to get this deal done to move the team to Brooklyn. In essence, this is rescuing the Nets. Well, and you have to wonder about Prokhorov. Right now, I always wonder about who is buying NBA franchises, Major League Baseball franchises. I mean, to me, it just seems like a bad business investment because it doesn't seem like any way you look at it, you're going to make any money. Now, if you're that rich, maybe you just want to own a sports franchise. Oh, I think this is a slam dunk deal for Prokhorov if he gets it done. And here's the reason. A, moving the team from New Jersey to Brooklyn immediately jacks up the value of the franchise because now you're in New York and you're in Brooklyn, which is going to become, it's already starting to become a thriving area again. Um, The other thing is this is a real estate deal too. So Bruce Ratner would oversee the real estate portion of all of this. And I think that's his background, too. He's a real estate guy from what I understand. He is, and that's like a lot of these owners. Frank McCorder owns the Dodgers. I mean, a lot of these guys made their money in real estate. So Prokhorov would, you know, get to have his fun tinkering with the basketball team and would oversee basketball operations. Imagine, you know, this guy's going to spend money on players. They're not going to be letting guys like Vince Carter and Jason Kidd walk out the door. Now they're going to be aggressive in the free agent market, and if you're playing in Brooklyn and you're a free agent, that all of a sudden becomes a real attractive option. Well, and you have to think about maybe, like you just said, the LeBron factor. Now with the teams in Brooklyn, we've talked about LeBron possibly going to New York. No. Is he not, you don't think he's going to even bat an eye at it? Look, I will say this for the 20th time on this show. $30 million. If LeBron... Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh stay with their teams, and we know they're going to get max deals. Their own teams can pay them $30 million more than anyone else and give them an extra year. I don't think that they're going to make $30 million back in endorsements or any other way. I just don't see how it makes sense for them economically. But wouldn't them moving to New York be a catalyst for them to have bigger endorsement Not deals? Not $30 million worth. I don't think so. Not in this economy. Look, again, we talk every week on the show about sponsors who are cutting ad budgets, sponsors who are cutting endorsement budgets. I mean, heck, Tiger Woods and Buick had to sever their deal because Buick ran out of money because they're owned by GM. I mean, it, the list goes on and on. So the days of these companies being able to throw 
a zillion dollars at you or Nike being able to throw a hundred million dollars or so at LeBron, those days are done. So my question to you though is we talk on the show all the time about the rich getting richer. Now we all know the Nets have not been a major factor in the NBA world in a while. Well, but they've been in the finals twice in the last decade, which is better than a lot of teams. Okay. Still. But if you have a new owner and the guy's willing to put money out and players want to come, is there any way LeBron doesn't go? Listen, we already know Jay-Z wants him to come. We already know that. This this deal will not be done. It won't be far enough down the road by next summer. So, you know, things may be signed off on, but there's not going to be progress. I don't see how the Nets are going to be able to be a big enough player. And, again, you know, I think – as I've said many times on the show, LeBron's going to go through the recruiting process because he never got to do that for college because everyone knew he wasn't going to college. So he's going to let teams woo him and wow him and whine him and dine him. And at the end of the day, he's going to say, I'm going to be loyal. I'm going to stay here in Ohio. But what it's really about is he's going to make $30 million more than he would by going to the Nets, the Knicks, or anywhere else. He's staying in Cleveland unless, you know, there's just some unbelievable falling out that he has with uh, Gilbert and with the management in Cleveland, which I just don't foresee this year. Well, let's change gears here now. If you're another NBA owner, if you're Mark Cuban, how do you feel about this guy well, coming Cuban into your Cuban league? said this week, he said, I think it's exciting. I think it adds credibility to our league. He said, I'll have to brush up on my, my Russian. Well, Cuban's a wild card, though. That's a bad example. But if, uh, you know, if you're... You know, anyone else. The Maloofs are probably you know also what? a bad you idea. You like a guy who has $9.5 billion of poker chips coming to play poker. It's good for your league when multi-billionaires, when richest men in a country like Russia, come and take a stake in your league. It's very good for business. It's good for all the other owners. And I think they're all going to like it. Now, you know, if we start having some prostitution stories and mafia stories and guys being paid bonus money under the table when he's circumventing the rules, maybe they won't like him as much. It's funny because... Guys being buried in the concrete of the new stadium. I mean, Mark Cuban is a maverick. He owns the Mavericks. This guy may be more of a maverick than Mark Cuban, but we're going to find out. And look, again, this isn't a done deal. He's got to get approved by the Board of Governors. There's going to be a vetting process. There are going to be people that do their background and due diligence on this guy and as I told you Bruce Ratner has to come up with his end of the deal which is basically tying up all the loose ends on the real estate on the arena side of things so there are a few different ways this thing could fall apart but it's very intriguing and it got a lot of headlines this week if you're the NBA do you immediately sign off on this if you're David Stern, he's obviously excited because, again— well, Bobby, it doesn't matter what David Stern says because it's voted on by the Board of Governors. So, But, but what I'm saying is if you're the NBA, because NBA has some say in this, do you just automatically say, okay, we want to get this deal done just because? Sure. I'm sure there are PR guys right now are spinning the headlines. We're globalizing our sport. We have the first owner from another country investing in our league. He's the wealthiest man in, in Russia. You know, it's going to do this, that, and the other. Imagine the TV deals they're going to make over in Russia to watch New Jersey Nets basketball games. They'll be on TV all over the place. Well, in preseason games, maybe in-season games where they go over and they play in Russia. We've seen it with the NFL. And, uh, you know, this, this, this could go anywhere. Sky's the limit with this one. It's going to be interesting to watch. All right, coming up next in Sports Sense, the third youngest coach in college football, Steve Sarkeesian. Former offensive coordinator for USC, a Pete Carroll protege, beat Pete Carroll and the Trojans last Saturday in Seattle 
after the Huskies had lost 15 straight. This guy's got the Huskies off to a nice start. The rebirth of Huskies football in Seattle, one of the brightest minds in college football. Steve Sarkeesian, that's coming up next. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm looking for a place to have dinner with family, friends, or business associates, there's only one restaurant on my list. Morton's The Steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. In its 28th year in business, Morton serves only the finest quality foods, featuring USDA prime-age beef, fresh seafood, hand-picked produce, and decadent desserts prepared to perfection. Not to mention the award-winning wine list. When my destination is Morton's, the best is always on the menu. And they treat me like a VIP during every visit, whether in the dining room or the private boardrooms. With almost 75 restaurants conveniently located around the world, Morton's is the gold standard when it comes to steakhouses. To find the Morton's nearest you or to make a reservation, go online to mortons.com. Morton's, the best steak anywhere and the official steakhouse of Sports Business Radio. One-on-one with those making the big-time decisions that impact your sport. This is Sports Sense on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio. My guest is Steve Sarkeesian. He's the head football coach at the University of Washington. Coach Sarkeesian, thanks so much for joining us, and congratulations on your huge win against USC last weekend. Well, thanks for having me on. So, Coach, take us back a few months ago when you were interviewing with the University of Washington. The team didn't win a game last year. They haven't been to a bowl game since 2002. What was the potential you saw with the Huskies football program that enticed you to take this job? Well, I, I had known kind of growing up in the Pac-10 and in Southern California, you know, the history and tradition of this place. This place has got a, a wonderful football tradition that's built on Pac-10 championships, Rolls Bowls, national championships. So, you know, as much as they were down, I always feel like if a place is down but it's been to that high level before, that it's a little easier to get back there. And I've always been enamored by it just because of Don James and Jim Owens and, and all the great players they've had here. The one thing I've got to give you credit for, you're 2-1 and one starting the season. It seems like you've come in and you've changed the culture and the mindset at a place where losing has been prevalent. The last four seasons, 11-37 and 37 at the University of Washington. Coach, how do you come into a place and change the mindset and culture. I've talked to owners, other coaches at the pro level. It's not an easy task. How have you done it so far? Well, I don't think it is easy. I think the one thing we try to do is, one, emphasize you know, how we were physically because this team was beat up, beat up mentally and physically. And physically, uh, we really stressed in the weight room and in our conditioning program to get a more athletic football team, a team that played better in space, that was more explosive. Uh, and then mentally – a team that, you know, I think was so beat up mentally that it almost expected to lose, and we went totally 180 degrees opposite and went with expect to win. And the only way you expect to win is through preparation and doing things right. And as we kept doing things and having different competitive challenges, we understood that there always is a winner and a loser, but I wanted our guys getting used to winning, and so we put them in, in situations where they had an opportunity to win. Expect to win. I've heard you use that. You're using it again in this interview. How can that be applied off the field as well? Because I like where you're going with that, and it seems like if you apply it to life in general, it makes it even better for the person trying to apply that motto. Well, there's no doubt. And you know, We use expect to win in everything we're doing. And 
And the reality of it is, you know, expectations are high outside. They're obviously high within. But if you have an expect-to-win mantra, well, you better get yourself prepared to win. And that is in life, not just in football. That's in life. So you got to do a great job in the classroom. you got to do a great job in your social settings. And you obviously need to do a great job in the weight room and your conditioning program. How often did you meet with your players before the season started, maybe some of your key players who have been around the program to try and help them help you lead the others with the expect to win motto? Well, you know, I didn't put it much on the players. I put it on the coaches and it starts with me and it goes to our assistant assistant coaches because I felt like we had to be the ones to lead. We had to be the ones to show these guys the way, the expectation level, the energy, the enthusiasm, the intensity that it takes day in and day out to accomplish something like we want to accomplish. So, uh, in time, I think our, our players will have the opportunity to really be the true leaders. But for right now, I'm relying on the Nick Holtz of the world, the Doug Nassifiers, the Eddie Cazettos, Johnny Nansons to lead these guys. Our guest is Steve Sarkeesian. He's the head football coach at the University of Washington. Coach, describe your style as a head coach. You've been an assistant to date. Now you're sitting in the big seat. What's your style? Well, I, I think I'm one that I am intense. Uh, you know, I get locked in. When we're on the field, I'm intense at what we're doing. I have a great, you know, respect for attention to details and doing things the right way. But with that comes a lot of fun. I love what I do. Uh, I love the game of football. I love college football. So every opportunity I get, I want to have fun doing it. And I, I think our team is embodying those personalities. You know, I, I think every football team, you know, embraces the head coach that it plays for. And, and uh, I think our team's the same way. We're intense, we're, we're upbeat, we're energetic, but yet we also know when to have our fun and enjoy the process. Besides dealing with the media, what's the biggest difference between being a head coach and an assistant coach? Uh, deciding when to go for it or when to kick on fourth down. You know, I, that's always been the one for me, and it still is after three games because, you know, the coordinator and you always want to go for it. You always believe in the play call you've got. You believe in your personnel. But the head coach in you always kind of looks at it and says, is this what's best for our football team? Is this best for our defense if we don't make it? And so uh, I think that that's the biggest challenge for me right now, and I'm uh, still working through it. What do you do to prepare yourself mentally to lead the coaches and, and the players? I mean, you know, some people go jogging. Some people just have quiet time and read inspirational books. What are you doing to prepare yourself mentally? Well, I think I like my time. I like my time to think through things. Uh, I pride myself on being prepared and being organized. Uh, not overly, though, because I think you, you make some of your best decisions when things get thrown at you and you have to make a decision on a split second. Um, but, but really, I, I like to enjoy my family. I have a lot of fun. And, uh, and then I think I am the one that has to bring the energy, the enthusiasm, the intensity day in and day out, and everyone else you know, seems to follow. How do you like Seattle? Love it. Love it. It's a great city, great community. Um, it's this, this place loves sports. It's a sports town, obviously, with the Huskies, the Sounders, the Seahawks, the Mariners. Uh, but there's nothing like Husky Stadium on Saturday afternoon, that's for sure. Well, and it seems like they've just been salivating for the opportunity to embrace Husky football again. So uh, after that win last week, seeing everyone run onto the field, it was like four years of angst released. Yeah, I think it was. You know, I think this place is stopping because, you know, they've seen a lot of great times. They've seen a lot of great games and great players. And, uh, you know, I'm just happy for the fact that they're getting to, they're getting to see this football team play, you know, up closer towards its potential because I think we've got a good football team. 
a team with some talented kids with, with great desire and great willingness. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad the community is getting to see them play the way they're playing right now. Coach, I think you were the first college football coach, correct me if I'm wrong, to start using Twitter. You've got a Facebook account, you blog, you've got a website. How important are these off-the-field tools to building a winning program on the field? Well, they're huge, especially when they're starting out like we were, because uh, obviously we had a fan base that uh, you know was, wasn't quite you know fully behind what we were doing when I first jumped on board, so... I wanted to get in touch with as many people as I could that were Huskies or potential Huskies and get them rallying behind what we were doing. And the best way to do that is to give people some insight, you know, some behind-the-scenes looks at, looks at what's going on. And you're able to do that with Twitter. You're able to do that with Facebook and all the social media that's out there right now. And uh, it, it's the way we communicate in the world these days. And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing uh, is irrelevant. It's the fact that that's the way the world works right now. Yeah, I follow you on both Twitter and Facebook, and I read some of the comments that other people are sending. And, you know, it seems like they're just so happy that someone with the football program is reaching out to them. They, they, it seems so personal. Well, we try to make it that way. We try to make it that, you know, we're real normal people, and we're not trying to hide behind any doors or, or any curtains. This is who we are. Come and check us out. We're not going to change. We're not going to waver, whether it's game day, practice, off season. This is who we are, and uh, hopefully you appreciate how hard we work, how hard these kids work, and come out and share them on. Coach, uh, you're in your first year, obviously, at the University of Washington as the head coach. You're coaching players that were recruited by your predecessors. Walk us through the process. I've always wanted to ask someone in your seat this question. You know, how long does it take to kind of turn over the program with your imprint? you got to go out and recruit, and how does that whole process work? Well, I think, it, you know, it's as long as you want to make it. And really, you know, if you, if you want to drag it out and say, we got to wait till we get all our guys, and that's the mentality that your coaches will take on. That's the mentality that the kids will take on. Oh, well, he's just buying time until he gets his own guys in here. We came in, and right from day one, said it's a clean slate. I don't care what you guys have done before, whether it's good, bad, and different. Uh, it's a clean slate, and you're going to prove to us who you are what you're about day in, day out, because everything in this program, everything you do counts. And uh, I think our kids have really responded to this opportunity. And so I'm not worried about the fact that you know, we didn't recruit all these kids or as we move forward in the future. I'm, I'm just worried about how are they doing now and are they getting themselves prepared to be successful today. Coach, I've had Coach Pete Carroll on this show before, and he had some really great things to say about your remarkable upset this past weekend. Clearly, he must be a great mentor to you. How important is it for young people to have a mentor or someone who's going to give them that opportunity to prove what they can do? Well, I, I think it's huge. I, I think everybody you know, in this world needs something to look at to not, not imitate, but give yourself a chance to say, man, that's really great how he does this, or I wish I could someday be able to handle a situation like that. And obviously, working with Pete for seven years, I was, you know, I got that opportunity. I got to be around one of the greatest coaches of all time and um, to see how he handled a variety of different situations that I was able to kind of just log notes on and, and be a sponge. And not that I'd handle all of them the same as he did, but I was put in a situation and forced myself to make the decision in my own mind. How would I handle it if it were me? And so now when the situations come up, I don't feel in awe uh, about making the decision. The similarity I see between the two of you, you're both tremendously upbeat 
and you just have this passion for the game, and uh, I think that's that's tremendous. Well, I really do. I, I love, I love, like I said, I love the game of college football. Um, I love this university. I love these kids. I'm fortunate to be at a great place, you know. And uh, you know, hopefully, we can just continue to get better and do great things in the future. One of the things I talked to Coach Carroll about is, you know, there's always rumors about him returning to the NFL, and you know, one of the things he said to me was, you know. I'm the guy here. I get to be my own boss. I don't have to report to an owner and, and people sometimes who have unrealistic expectations. You had the opportunity to go coach the Oakland Raiders back in uh, 2007. Did you kind of come to the same conclusion that Coach Carroll had? No, I really did. You, know, you, you assess every situation separately, and uh, that one was not the right one for obvious reasons. And what I love about this job here is our president, you know, President Emmert, and our athletic director, Scott Woodward, you know, they've allowed me the autonomy to go do this thing and to, to make this thing what, what I think it's capable of being and not the national champion, and they've given us the resources and the support to make that happen. Last question for you. I know you're only heading into your fourth game, but, you know, in business we talk about exit strategies. When you look down the road at the end of your career, what do you want to be remembered for when you leave the game? Um. I, I don't know if I want to be remembered as anything but a, but a guy that was able to motivate kids, that was a good mentor to these kids, that, that when all of our guys, whether they were all Pac-10, all-American players, or the backup walk-on kicker, when they walked out of here, they were successful in life because they learned the value of preparation, mental and physical preparation, and the ability to compete when they got put in adverse situations and to keep battling and to refocus and battle again. Well, Coach, you're off to a tremendous start at the University of Washington as the head coach. Continued success to you, and I appreciate you joining me this week on Sports Business Radio. All right, anytime. Thank you very much. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. Every championship team has one thing in common, good coaching. And I want to be your coach your media coach. When I'm not hosting Sports Business Radio, I team with former Nike PR director Lee Weinstein to form New School Media Coaching. New School Media Coaching uses a fresh and interactive approach for educating our clients about dealing with today's media landscape. Whether you're an athlete, a coach, or a front office executive in the sports or business world, we'll prepare you for communications with the masses in today's social media world where everything is on the record. And just like any good coach, We'll help you practice your new skills, and we'll be there to provide constructive feedback every step of the way. With a combined 40 years of experience, we're veteran coaches, but we use a new school approach. For an overview and a list of our services, visit newschoolmediacoaching.wordpress.com or email me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. Well, the fiasco in Phoenix as I call it, continues with the Coyotes. This week, Wayne Gretzky steps aside as the coach and director of hockey operations. Gretzky was scheduled to make $8.5 million this season. He coached the Coyotes from 2005 to 2009, finished with a below 500 record. And you know what? I don't even talk about this story on this show really anymore because until it's done, until it's solved... I mean, we could just sit here and go round and round and round on this story. It is one of the biggest messes I've ever seen 
with a pro sports franchise. It's like a soap opera. And Wayne Gretzky's the star of the soap opera, and now he's out of the picture. Well, it'll be interesting to see if, uh, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of other teams like the L.A. Kings who would love to have Wayne Gretzky either on the bench or directing their hockey operations. He's the great one. He'll find another job if he wants one. All right. The last thing of the week, this was an interesting story. Puma and Adidas employees played a soccer match against each other in Germany this week. Then they watched the Day After Peace. The event came on Peace Day, represents the first joint activity by employees of the two companies since Audi and Rudolf Dossler left their shared firm in 1948 and established Adidas and Puma. This has been going on. This battle has gone on longer than the Middle East turmoil. So it's interesting. A lot of people don't know this is how Adidas was formed. Adi Dossler and his brother, they used to have Puma, then Adidas was formed. So 1948 was the last time these two companies got together for some joint activities. Hallelujah. Peace is is restored for at least one day. I wonder if they'll be under the same umbrella now at some point in the not-so-distant future. I don't know. I wouldn't go that far. Let's take it a step at a time. All right, lots of thank yous on the show this week. Steve Sarkeesian, the head coach of the Washington Huskies. Thank you to him. Our show staff, Nathan Roach, Bobby Corser, Josh Blank, Darren Peck, Ron Barr, James Harrison, Doug Zanger. Our sponsors, the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon, Morton's The Steakhouse, and New School Media Coaching. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com, click on the podcast page. We're podcasting on iTunes. We're in the top 100 under the business news section. And we're on Twitter, SB Radio. Just went over 1,000 followers. I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week. We'll talk to you next weekend right here on Sports Business Radio. Greg Oden of the Portland Trailblazers supports the Ronald McDonald Houses. I'm a big fan of the houses. Happy to help them make a difference. He helps because he believes every hospitalized child should be near their family in tough times. And everyone can support this home away from home. When you purchase a McCafe Espresso drink or premium roast coffee, McDonald's donates a portion of proceeds to Ronald McDonald House charities in Oregon and Southwest Washington. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. A little change can make a big difference.